Hi everyone, I'm Sam Barnes. I'm Grace Kyer. And I'm Arielle Landau. And, and welcome, welcome to, to Big Nuke Energy! The views, thoughts, and opinions expressed in this podcast and on the Big Nuke Energy Twitter belong solely to the co-hosts and not necessarily to their employers, universities, or other organizational affiliations. Any content provided by the co-hosts are of their own opinion and are not intended to malign any religion, ethnic group, organization, company, or individual. Hi, everyone, and welcome to episode 36 of Big Nuke Energy. We hope that everyone is staying safe and healthy during this holiday season. Today, we have a super amazing guest with us. Her name is Lauren Bowita. She is the founder and CEO of Girl Security, which we'll be talking about in more depth later. Prior to this position, she started her own consulting firm called Steel Consulting, which focused on providing legal advice to clients on urban security and policy challenges. Before that, she was a policy analyst at the National Strategy Forum, which is a nonpartisan national security think tank located in Chicago. Additionally, she was a fellow with the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace, the Truman National Security Project, the American Bar Association Standing Committee on Law and National Security, and the Chicago Council on Global Affairs. Lauren, thank you so much for being with us today. Oh, thank you. I really appreciate the opportunity to join you. Although I, I should clarify that I wasn't giving legal advice in my consulting firm. <laughs> I don't want to get in trouble for that. Uh, but I was doing more analysis and policy consulting. That's super awesome. You have an incredible background. I can't wait to hear more about how you got into a national security. But first of all, do you have a fun fact that you would like to share with us in the audience just so we can get to know you a little better? I do have a fun fact. And my fun fact is I once consumed... 10 bags of cotton candy at a Cubs game. Well, it's mostly <laughs> air, right? <laughs> I was pretty proud of that, uh, of that achievement. And I, I think I might hold a record somewhere, at least among Cubs fans. <laughs> That's amazing. Honestly, that is greater than any fun fact I could have imagined. <laughs> Usually I mentioned I worked construction in uh, college, but I don't think that's necessarily any fun anymore, so... Oh, cotton candy's pretty fun. Yes. <laughs> and before we move to this week's deep dive, let's go into our short discussion question, which this week is, what's your favorite book, TV show, movie, podcast, whatever you want of the year as we wrap up this wild roller coaster of a year? Lauren, do you have a favorite media or something else that you've interacted with this year? I have so many favorite things. My children are old enough to kind of read. And so uh, we've been rereading classics together, like um, Black Beauty. We were started reading Count of Monte Cristo and um, Little Women, which my son really got into. So revisiting classics. And then I read The Vanishing Half, which was really remarkable by Britt Bennett. And show, I have to say, Queen's Gambit, even though I'm tired of the way women female characters are written through the lens of men. I still just thought the aesthetic of the of the show was just brilliant and I really fell in love with it. Yeah, my favorite show I was going to talk about was also <laughs> The Queen's Gambit and I think I watched the whole thing in 2 days and I just it was just a really entertaining show to watch but yes, looking back on it I was like, okay, definitely hypersexualizing women here. It's a show about chess, why is there so much sex in it? But 
<laughs> we we have a section on it in proliferation patriarchy too. So we'll talk more about that later. Cool. Grace, what about you? I think my favorite book that I read this year, which came out, I'm realizing now in 2016, so I'm late to the party, but is Born a Crime by Trevor Noah. Really, really powerful and very witty and funny and moving memoir about um, his time growing up in South Africa and how he really got his start. So highly recommend that. Um, and I learned so much about South Africa and also his life. And he is just hilarious in a lot of different parts in it. So highly recommend. And I think my favorite TV show has to go or has to be um, The Great British Bake Off this year, their 2020 edition. They put them in a bubble. It was very relaxing, very calming. Mm -hmm. Highly recommend if you're just looking to not stress about what's happening in the year 2020 and wanting to stress about someone's bread not rising. I highly recommend. So Sam, what about you? <laughs> well, that sounds incredible. Honestly, I should watch that to get some baking tips because I always like want to be good at baking, but I'm like just not quite good enough to actually make really, really high quality products. So perhaps I should watch that and re relieve my stress from baking. But the TV show I wanted to talk about um, is one that I actually finished a couple weeks ago. And you probably are going to laugh at me because it is technically a kid's TV show. It is called She-Ra and the Princesses of Power. And it is a reboot of a 1980s series. Um, the plot in a nutshell, if you watch the first episode, you'll find this out. The main character crash lands in a forest, finds a sword. When she touches it, it gives her visions. And she soon realizes that she's fighting on the wrong side of a war and uses her special sword powers to push back. But the main reason why I wanted to take the time to highlight this show is because the creator, Noelle Stevenson, does an excellent job of combining dorky humor, complex relationships, LGBTQI inclusion, and a whole gang of badass women in such a way that you can't help feeling empowered after you've seen just a couple episodes. So if you are a nerd or if you have kids, I highly recommend showing them this show. Um, it just ended in May of 2020, so. Sam, may I just say that I'm 40, which means I was born in 1980, and I grew up and She-Ra was my hero. She was my oh She-Ra. And I, you know, they only had G.I. Joes and She-Ra, and there was only one female G.I. Joe, Scarlet, and so I'd have to bring in She-Ra with the G.I. Joes to kind of have a, a gender parody in my kind of military toy plane. So yes, props wow. to She-Ra. Wow, that is incredible. So if you were looking to show something like that to your kids, I would highly recommend it. <laughs> Just don't tell them, you know, that a 22-year-old was watching it. It's amazing. <laughs> I was looking last Christmas, I was rewatching some episodes of Kim Possible, which is also a children's show with a very strong female character. And that holds up. Like, it's still really, really good. So also highly recommend Kim Possible. Yeah. I've been watching Drake and Josh recently. Oh, so yes. it's, it's that nostalgia for a pre-pandemic time, maybe. Or maybe the adults are just failing to act like adults and we're all reverting to childhood shows. That's a good point. Yeah. <laughs> well, let's go ahead and shift gears, move into the deep dive for this week, which we're going to be talking about Lauren's work with Girl Security. Before we kind of dive into what exactly Girl Security does, we want to know what prompted you to enter the field of national security in the first place and then what has inspired you to stay? 
Those are really great questions. I think what really inspired me to go into the field was, and actually I really didn't know that it was a field for me. I had always had an interest in what I would say are activities that were either restricted to boys or male dominated, you know, football, carpentry. I wanted to serve as a, an altar boy in my parish as a, as a child, those sorts of things. And I studied political science in college and 9-11 happened my junior year of college. And so I wanted to go back to Illinois and find a job in what I thought was something like foreign policy, international affairs, but surprise, very few apparent opportunities in that space in Illinois. So I worked at a law firm about for about a hot second and was super bored. And I started looking for jobs and there was a job at a national security think tank. And I started to do some research on it. It actually was one of the earliest national security think tanks in the country, founded by Donald Rumsfeld and a group of Chicago businessmen who would brown bag lunches you know, every so often and sit around and talk about hard security issues. So that was really my entry into the national security field at 22 years old. Wow. It's always nice to hear people kind of like hopping around different career choices, especially as we start trying to figure out what we're going to do with our lives. So what drove you to establish Girls Security and what are the main goals of that organization? I think Girls Security is really a combination of my experiences that have been much improved and sharpened by the work team and motivation for it was that when I was 22 working at this think tank, my brother was deployed to Iraq and I was working on a lot of national security law issues. And as he was deployed and he and I were writing letters back and forth, I was kind of watching the rationale for the war unfold, as well as studying a lot of the law and policy that provide the foundation for a lot of the decision-making at the time. And so from a Chicago Midwest perspective, I thought, well, I want to talk about all these things, but nobody knows how to talk about it with me. That was really the basic thrust of girl security almost 20 years ago, was this idea that we needed to bridge the gap among people outside of Washington, D.C., about these really important issues that affect not just our country, but individual families and individuals across the, across the country. And then, of course, being a woman in national security, I rarely met other women. I was subject to a lot of inappropriate comments, inappropriate behavior. And ultimately, after about seven years working at the think tank that I really loved, I had an unfortunate uh, incident with my employer at the time. And so I left my position and was in law school, in fact. And that's when I started my consulting company because I was, I was quite lost. I didn't know where to go. And so I knew that I had to do something. And so I started a consulting firm and I got a couple of clients, one of whom became a very dear friend and mentor who passed away in April. And he and I worked together on a lawsuit against the city of Chicago for, uh, well, I'll say it, fraud and civil rights violations. Um, and so the combination of having a national security policy background, I should specify, coupled with working on local civil rights issues and racism issues in the city of Chicago, really kind of brought the model together for me over the course of you know, almost 15 years. And I feel fortunate to have had the opportunity to do work on local policy and security issues because I think it really helped shape what we're doing at Girls Security. And then on top of it, it was 2016 and disinformation was you know, kind of the really important issue that we began talking about. And as I started to study it, I realized what a direct impact it was having on girls. And so I just had this whirlwind in my head where I thought, 
why haven't we done what we've done for girls in STEM and other fields in security? And I knew the answer, which was people are afraid of national security. People have very strong partisan ideals about national security and society still does not hold women in active security roles, despite all of the things that girls and women do to keep themselves safe every day. So that was the kind of alchemy of experiences and ideas that shaped the model for, for girl security. And really our goal is twofold. It's to empower girls civically in national security discourse. So we want girls across the country from all parts of the country to feel as though they can sit down and have an informed conversation about what's happening in the news. And then on top of that, of course, for girls interested in the field, we want to take the coolest, highest level training, scaffold it for them, and then provide them with a really fun and supportive community of women who can mentor them along the way. Wow, that's all really interesting. And it sounds like you have, like you said, a perfect alchemy, a perfect background um, to create this organization. And so we were wondering what steps girl security is taking to change the narratives surrounding women in national security, especially working with girls in this younger, younger age group. Absolutely. Um, I think part of it is just asking girls what national security means to them, which is what we do every single program. We just start with a very open trauma informed discussion about security and how girls experience security. And then we kind of help them scaffold up and say, okay, now that you've developed at least a discourse in your own security, let us demonstrate or explain to you how national security has been defined for you, at least modern national security over the last hundred years, primarily through the lens of white men. And those experiences and, and ideals have shaped our institutions and how we make decisions um, as part of those institutions. And so we're really creating a space for girls to rewrite the narrative. And then our job is to take that narrative and amplify it. And we're effectively doing that both through programming that amplifies girls' voices, but also delivering girls' recommendations, policy papers, letters to institutions like the National Security Council or Congress people and so forth. Their narrative looks quite different than the historical narrative around national security. Speaking of that narrative, I was curious in your experience working in this field, what do you find to be the most valuable arguments for advocating for women's participation in national security? I know there are several strands of this, you know, one that says women innately have qualities that they possess that allow them to offer unique perspectives. And then other arguments say that women should be involved simply because they make up half of the constituency. Um, so I was curious, you know, what have you experienced and what has proven to be the most effective form of discourse about this topic? I guess what I would start by saying is, which is probably the answer some people don't want to hear from me, which is I don't feel like we need to quantify or qualify why girls and women should be in national security. Mm -hmm. That's, that would be the place where I'd like to start, which is to say we shouldn't have to say that women bring X, Y, or Z to the table. In addition, I think we always run the risk of positioning identities against each other, um, which can be detrimental to both our national security goals, but also just a general working understanding of national security. But what I would say is, is that I think the way in which national security has been defined primarily by men has been through the lens of preventing, or actually I should say fear of attack, trying to keep the country free from fear. Uh, and that is not something that girls or women understand. And so I think if anything, what we're trying to inject is a certain reality a lens that's been missing for a very long time, which is that there's no such thing as freedom from fear. That's an illusion. It's a privilege really that women and people of color and others have never enjoyed. 
that lens has led to decisions that have had tremendous consequences for our country as well as the rest of the world. And so we just don't know what the narrative would look like if we had more than half the population involved. So let's just see what that narrative looks like and try to forge just a consensus around the fact that diversity matters and national security, and it will make us more secure in the long term and the near term, I think, actually. That's really fascinating. Thank you for, for that response. Yeah. So I've been doing Model UN for several years now. And so I, part of Girl Security is hosting Model UN-esque simulations, but only for young women. And that would honestly be a dream for me personally, because I'm usually one of the only women in the room. So are the results of these crisis scenarios different than what you would imagine in an all-male group? I think that's a really good question. And what I always stress with our simulations that I know is unique is they're designed by women, they're trauma-informed, and they're tested by girls, right? So there's something to be said about presenting a narrative through the lens of women, specifically in national security. So I hope and feel that girls who participate in our simulations recognize that the texture of the simulation is through a particular lens, as well as having the kind of trauma-informed. We also emphasize things like empathy and collaboration as well as innovation and strategy and ethics. But we try to create a texture to our simulations that is a bit more holistic. I would say as far as the experience of the simulation being all girls and women, we have done mixed simulations. And as you might expect, it's a very different experience. Um, and I don't want to attribute that to gender or anything else really, other than to say with observation, it is not as free flowing, it is not as productive, and it is far less gamified when it's um, primarily girls, solely girls in the simulation context. That's not to say it's not fun or engaging when we have done mixed simulations. It's just a noticeably different experience. And what age groups do you work with in girl security and how do you pick those age groups? So we work with middle through high school. And really, that's just a function of what products we have available for the populations we serve, which include learning modules, so content developed by women on national security for girls. The simulations are primarily for the high school age as well as the mentor network. We don't onboard girls until, until high school. But we can serve a pretty broad audience. Now, I will say that we did a simulation by Melissa Dalton, who's one of our advisors. She's amazing. She's now on the transition team for the Biden administration on Syria. And we ran the simulation with about 500 girls at once in January, including middle school students. And being a parent, my intuition was to create an external role for the middle school students so that they could be insulated from some of the more complicated language around terrorist groups like ISIS and so forth. At the end of the simulation, a middle school girl stood up and said, basically, this is bullpucky. We wanted to be in the simulation. You know, we know about these things. So then we ended up running the same simulation with a middle school, and it was wonderful. And the girls knew exactly what to do. They stepped into the content, into the roles. They withdrew or extracted a lot of the same ideas and learnings that we'd hoped they would. And so we'll probably start varying that up a little bit more to give them the applied learning experience, which we know works so well for girls. But I would say that I've made some some calculations along the way that are probably driven by a bit of, of my parenting neuroticism. 
That's a really cool education model, especially how you said these modules are developed by women. It's really, really nice to see that you guys are actually following through on, on what you guys are advocating for, which is really awesome to hear about. Well, too, I think it's an opportunity to highlight women in every facet of what we do. You know, we feature mentors in all of our lesson plans. We feature mentors videos as part of our learning modules. You know, we bring mentors into our programming. And so for me, which I often say very candidly is, you know, I'm kind of the moral of the story. I left the field because I had a bad experience, but I loved what I was doing, which is why girl security is so important to me. But as a result of that, because we have a platform, it's really my obligation and our, our organization's obligation to highlight all of these awesome women doing all these really cool things, yourselves included, so that girls can see the myriad ways in which they can be involved in national security. And you mentioned briefly before that a lot of the approaches to national security with this age group tend to be focused on avoiding partisanship and, you know, changing things with partisanship. I was wondering how you approach that and approach the modules that you're creating and the learning platforms in a way that is informative and educational and helping girls learn about these issues without being partisan or being perceived as partisan in, you know, what we know is this hyper polarized time period that we live in. Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. And it's an important one because when I started Girl Security in 2016, I knew, I mean, I knew from being from the Midwest that national security was very partisan. And so one of the board members is my sister, Allison, who's an adolescent mental health specialist. So we spent about two years coming up with a model that's very much discourse driven, learning how to work and communicate with adolescents, take cues. And so, so much of what we do is asking questions and really active listening and not putting upon young people what we think things should mean. That's number one. The other piece of it is emphasizing ethics. Ethics is something that any child can understand, even though most kids don't know what the word ethics means, you know, how to define it. They understand having values. And so a lot of what we do emphasizes bringing your ethics to the table, making decisions and collaborating from your ethical frameworks, which I find provides a really neutral platform for discourse around partisan issues. But I would say as the last point is, um, especially around the election this year, we were doing a lot of emphasis on disinformation. You know, you go into a classroom or you're sitting with a group of girls and it's very clear that they have very different opinions. And I think it's just so important that we continue to create safe spaces for for civil discourse on really, really complicated issues like we, we confronted this year. Because I, I think what most adults fail to recognize is that adolescents today are confronting a very challenging information domain with very little insight and guidance from adults. And so I think it is our obligation to try as hard as we can to create those safe spaces for that civil discourse so that they aren't damned if they do and damned if they don't, especially around very complex issues like disinformation and election security. Well, Lauren, in the time that you've been working with Girl Security, what has been your most rewarding experience? And on the converse, what has been your most challenging experience? They're kind of the same, actually. <laughs> um, I would say, if I can be selfish for a moment, I think being a working mom during a pandemic has been extremely hard. And so I have to recognize our team, Erin Connolly, Rachel Jones, Tina Wong, Megan Burns, Elle Nicklin, so many others. Because if it had not been for them, we could not have had the growth that we've had this year. And that feeling of cohesion around a mission 
is quite powerful, especially when you're feeling low or fragile and all of those things that I know I've experienced this year. But there's not a second that goes by that I don't wake up and think about how grateful I am to be doing this work because it could be one girl, it could be a hundred girls or 300 girls. We know we have over 300 mentees in our program and every single story to me matters and it feels like we're making an impact. So it's all good, but I would say the experience of scaling during a pandemic has been extremely rewarding, but also very challenging. So I have to thank our, our amazing team for that. Well, thank you so much for doing that kind of work. So how can our listeners get involved with Girl Security? Well, there's many different ways to get involved and our website's pretty well organized to show that you can sign up to be a mentor if you're interested in mentoring, which is super rewarding. We found that our mentors this year, especially during the pandemic, got a lot out of just assisting others. You can sign up to be a mentee if you're interested. You know, that's you're paired with a, a mentor for six months and they really, our mentors go above and beyond to support development. And again, you know, post pandemic and the economy, this type of support can be very important. We're always looking for early, mid and senior career people to lead sessions for girls. That's another opportunity to consider it, and that's all available on the website as well. And just say a good word about the program if you support the mission, which again, that means a lot these days. So we appreciate that too. Well, we definitely appreciate the mission um, and all the work that you and the rest of the girl security team have been doing. So definitely listeners go check out their website because they're doing really powerful, impactful work. And thank you so much, Lauren, for joining us. Oh, thank you for the work that you're doing. This is creating a space for your voices, women's voices, others' voices. So thank you for doing the hard work as well. I appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you. joining us. We really enjoyed discussing girl security with uh, her. And so please, listeners, go check out her website because like we said, they're doing awesome work. And let's move to this week's non-pro shout out. Our non-pro shout out this week is Kamala Harris, who, as everyone knows, is going to be the first woman vice president of the United States, the first woman of color vice president, the first black woman vice president. And I think it's just really important to acknowledge this historic milestone for what it is. She, you know, overcame a lot to get to this point. She's going to be in the highest position within the executive branch that we've ever had a woman be in. And I think it's just really important to acknowledge this moment in time and the work that it took to shatter the glass ceiling that she has then shattered. So shout out to Kamala Harris. Yes, I was bawling during her acceptance speech, especially when she was saying, like, I am the first woman to be here, but I won't be the last. Mm -hmm. I was like, oh, my God. (laughs) Apparently, I've definitely looked way too much into this, but apparently she chose to wear, like, her white uh, pantsuit to represent, like, the suffragette movement, and I thought that was a really incredible call back to that but I think one of the things also I just want to point out is I was just struck by how not that I never thought this before I was struck by how competent and how I just thought her speech was really really well done she's an excellent politician she actually knows what she's talking about she knows how to galvanize support it was really refreshing seeing someone competent who I know is going to be in a high position of government and also like the fact that she's a woman I think it's just incredible, an incredible achievement. 
Yes. And of her many achievements, one that I particularly wanted to highlight is the New York Times had this article about the return of leggings and wearing leggings mm-hmm. all the time, in particular because when she made the, the call that was posted on Twitter, the video of her calling Joe Biden, telling him that they won, she was wearing leggings. So I have many of her achievements, many um, accomplishments. I do also appreciate her bringing back the legging to the public basically because I wear leggings all the time and I really appreciated that we have a vice president who is willing to wear leggings as well. That's the equivalent I feel like of um, you know the line in Hamilton where like he seems approachable like you could grab a beer with him. I feel like that's uh, that's equivalent for people who like to wear leggings to see the fact that their vice president is also engaging in leisure wear. But after that let's go ahead and move to toast the heavy water if that's all right with you guys or else we're just going to keep crying and talking about Kamala Harris all afternoon which I'm okay with. (laughs) Instead let's cry about Iran. Um, (laughs) So I'm sure if you've been keeping up with the news you've seen the news that there was a recent assassination of an Iranian nuclear scientist so I just want to break that down a little bit and then I believe Ariel is going to have some really cool comments um, on what people have been saying on Twitter about this. So first of all, there was a scientist who spearheaded a secret Iranian nuclear program back in the 90s and early 2000s. His name was Mosin Fakhrizada, and I'm probably saying that wrong, and I'm sorry about that. He was killed. His car was shot at, potentially by a autonomous drone. There have been no official claims as of right now of who perpetrated the attack, but it is believed to either be the Israelis or an exiled Iranian opposition group, or both of them working together. So what are the implications of this former nuclear scientist being assassinated? Well, first of all, as a national security scholar, I want to talk about the possibility of remotely controlled weapons, such as machine guns, that can have huge consequences for civilians because I imagine it would be hard for a machine gun rigged at a guard post to go off if anyone steps within 50 feet of a base. How is that machine gun going to distinguish between a civilian who stumbles into the 50-foot range and a combatant? So I think that's the fact that this attack was perpetrated by unmanned drones and unmanned machine guns is pretty scary. Another consequence is now Iranians are referring to the scientist as the martyr doctor and are saying that they're going to go about continuing his work with vigor. So perhaps this assassination is only going to boost Iran's nuclear ambitions. And then the third consequence is that this is happening at a time of transition in U.S. leadership where we might not have the capacity for a reaction to this in the next month or so during this time of lame duck transition. So some analysts even have been saying that this assassination was a political move by Israel to end the prospect of Biden's attempt to rejoin the JCPOA or to forge any new Iranian nuclear deals. So all in all, there are a lot of consequences from this assassination, and I think it's going to be potentially scary to see where it leads. So that's what's going on in Iran right now. Yeah, so for Trump Twitter this week, I wanted to look into kind of how the Trump administration is viewing the assassination of Iran's former nuclear scientist. And basically, 
this assassination, it seems kind of in line with Trump's goals. Western intelligence thinks that Israel was behind this assassination, but it helps with the Trump administration's goals of reversing the JCPOA. And as Sam was talking about, this is kind of a lame duck period for President Trump. And so this kind of gives him the opportunity to solidify his policy of withdrawing from the JCPOA. So restoring the deal is a priority for Biden. It's in his plan for the first 100 days. But if things continue to escalate, that potential for that policy to be reinstated, that gap closes. And so, so far, Iran's been very careful not to take risks to prompt a Trump administration strike, especially before Biden comes into office and they might be able to restore the JCPOA. But not retaliating also means a win for Israel. And this is the third kind of major attack on national pride that Iran has faced in recent times. So it's getting riskier and riskier not to do anything for Iran, and it's also risky to do something. So it's definitely something to watch closely. It's also interesting is Trump has not really said anything about this on Twitter at all. He retweeted a New York Times article about it, which I found to be interesting because I thought they were fake news to him and also by journalist Yossi Melman. So he only basically retweeted pretty objective statements that, oh, this guy was killed. And most of his Twitter is election fraud stuff, and every other tweet basically is flagged with, this claim about election fraud is disputed. So that's where his head is at right now. Thanks for shedding some light on that, Ariel. I thought that was pretty interesting, also because I've not really had a a chance to dive too deep into Twitter about this issue. So thanks for pointing that out. Yeah, and I totally agree with both of you. I think you guys both had really good assessments that this has the potential to escalate, but we also have to wait and see whether or not it will. But as you really soundly pointed out, Ariel, this is not the first of these such actions against Iran in in the recent period. And so I'm wondering, you know, and this is something I'm not familiar with, but at what point domestically it becomes even more challenging for Iran to not um, escalate or to not strike back significantly. Yeah, to kind of go off of that, I was seeing a BBC article that does media analysis of different Middle Eastern news sources, and I was reading the domestic ones for Iran, and there are two different lines, but one of those lines that's telling the story is saying, we do not need to take this as an excuse to retaliate against the Western forces. We do not have the capabilities yet to do so. Um, So it's interesting to see that even within the population, some are urging restraint and some are calling for action. Yeah, that's really interesting. And I also think it'll be really fascinating to see how the U.S. relationship with Israel develops over the the coming months, especially with the new, with the incoming administration. As we all know, Trump has had a uniquely close relationship with Israel. And so I think it'll be really interesting to see what Israel chooses to do in the next few months to try and have perhaps more leverage with the U.S. to try and strengthen that relationship, despite having a president who will take a very different approach from President Trump. Going off of that, Grace, do you want to talk about DPRK, North Korea, and Russia? Yeah, definitely. I was actually thinking that it flows well. But basically, we're waiting to see what a Biden presidency will mean, of course, for all sorts of foreign policy issues, all sorts of policy issues. But I think in particular, North Korea and Russia, two countries with which Trump really 
tried to approach them differently, arguably, depending on how you, how you view it. But certainly with North Korea, of course, we know that, you know, he tried this very different type of diplomacy meeting with Kim Jong-un on a couple of different occasions, crossing the DMZ, which I remember like discussing these things with you. So it's funny that now we're coming up to the end of the, the Trump presidency. But I, I am very dubious that Biden will continue that kind of connection with North Korea. But I, I'm really not sure what it's going to look like going forward. I know Megan discussed this a lot in our previous episode, what a Biden presidency could look like. But I think we're kind of going to have to wait. And I think it'll be interesting to see to what extent North Korea chooses to test the U.S., to try and push the U.S., try and press this new administration, or maybe even try to continue this connection that was started under President Trump. But I, I really don't see I, I personally can't see a President Biden crossing the DMZ to North Korea, but you never know. And in terms of Russia, I think we'll be going, I, I personally think we'll probably be going back to more of a pre-Trump approach in terms of being kind of hard on Russia, although the Trump administration has been hard on Russia in, in many ways, apart from President Trump's personal connection that he's discussed ad nauseum with President Putin. But I do think that we'll see continued sanctions, we'll see this continued hard press against Russia, which, you know, frankly, hasn't changed a ridiculous amount with President Trump, despite what he says. And I, I do know that when the vice president was still campaigning, was saying that they are very interested in extending New START, remains to be seen what that will look like, because it'll be a very tight turnaround. It'll be like, 15 or 16 days from the inauguration point to the point of expiration for new start and whether or not Russia will kind of play hardball or be actually interested in just doing a, a blanket five-year extension will it be a shorter extension. We're not sure what that will look like, but we do have an incoming president who has stated his interest and intention to extend new start. It's really neat that we've been talking about a lot of these issues for a while and knowing that they're going to come to fruition and the next six months is very fascinating, I think, <laughs> especially with New Start. Yeah, definitely. I feel like I've been on this New Start train now for a long time. and You guys have been with me for better, for worse. And now we're, we're going to see what's going to happen. And I also feel that way about, you know, Iran, North Korea, and, and Twitter. So, yeah. Sweet. Well, let's go ahead and move to proliferation patriarchy. We have two kind of different topics here today, but the first one was in my gender insecurity class the other week, we discussed the impacts of the pandemic on gender insecurity. And several things that I thought were interesting that I'd love to hear your guys' thoughts on are this one New York Times article that points out that men are more likely to die from COVID-19 than women are due to pre-existing health conditions such as lung disease from smoking, heart disease, etc. And then the second fact is from the Georgetown Institute for Women, Peace, and Security, which stated that countries with female leaders have less COVID deaths than countries with male leaders. So I was curious, why do you guys think these two things are happening? And then also, like, what can we do to help the men? Because it sounds like they're struggling during COVID. And, you know, we don't want half the population to die from this disease. Yeah, so... My first thought is thinking that like men are already more likely to have heart disease and die from heart attacks than women. But I'm also thinking about all of the kind of that unpaid labor of care that the women in these men's lives are probably taking the extra burden on when they're when the men in their lives fall sick. 
and also just thinking about, okay, maybe men are more likely to die from COVID, but if we look at who is dying from COVID in our country and the communities most affected are minority communities in urban areas. So that's something to think about too. But countries with female leaders having less COVID deaths, I think that probably comes down to empathy and ego. And I think women are likely to have less of an ego and more empathy than male leaders. Yeah, I don't feel at all qualified to comment on the rate of COVID deaths among different people just because I am not in any way a medical expert. But I do think, like you said, Sam, I think it it really lays bare some of these ongoing issues like heart disease, like Ariel said, like a variety of different things that could make someone more susceptible to actually die from COVID or its complications. And so I think it's really important that we, after COVID and, you know, in the after times, whatever you want to call them, we continue to look at these things that affect different people, different disproportionate ways. And if that's heart disease affecting men, we should really consider that and see why that is. And and I'm sure that a lot of this has already been addressed beforehand, but thinking about why different populations are so susceptible or so at risk to various things is something that I think we should really take out of this, this horrible pandemic era going forward. And I agree with Ariel about ego and empathy and having female leadership as well. I think that's, you know, something that is helping those countries combat that as well. I know that some of the countries that have done really well have coalition governments, so that I imagine they're having to work more cooperatively with more compromise. And so I imagine that that leads to more actual addressing of the issues, whereas in the U.S., of course, we have a lot of, a lot of gridlock. So. I think the correct term you're looking for is post-apocalyptic world. Yes, correct. <laughs> oh, post, post-blank world, yeah. Uh-huh. So. I think just drawing on what you two said, going off of the intersectionality approach, I think that's going to be really crucial for future healthcare policies and ensuring that groups that are typically discriminated against in healthcare, such as women, such as LGBTQI, such as minority groups, ethnic and racial and religious minority groups, ensuring that they have equal access to healthcare is going to be absolutely crucial. I think this pandemic shows that we didn't necessarily, at least here in the United States, I can't speak for a lot of the other countries, but we don't necessarily always provide well for those groups. And I think that this pandemic has emphasized the need to do so. And then going off of this correlation between female leaders and less COVID deaths, I think it's interesting that 70% of healthcare workers are women. So let's get those women in the decision rooms. Like let's reform our national and local bodies to include more women's voices in order to ensure that we have potentially less egotistical and more empathetic approaches. Agreed. Yes, definitely. And the other thing that I think we wanted to discuss this week is the Queen's Gambit, which we mentioned previously. I only watched two and a half episodes. Um, We were talking beforehand. I was very into chess as a child, so it kind of brought a lot of that back for me. And I was like, that's I don't feel like watching the rest of this, but I was wondering your thoughts on it in particular because I read this New York Times article published earlier in November called How the Queen's Gambit Started a New Debate About Sexism in Chess by Dylan Lowe McLean, which basically interviews a lot of different female professionals in the sport and female chess experts who say that in the Queen's Gambit, of course, there's some negativity towards the main character who's a woman, but there's also like a lot of deference and there's like a lot of women or a lot of men who are like kind of you know cozying up to her and 
the women interviewed for this story who are real chess experts um, in real life were saying that in reality, they face a lot of sexism in the sport and a lot of negativity and a lot of issues. And so I was just wondering what you guys thought about the show. And again, I haven't seen more than the first two and a half episodes and I probably won't, but I was wondering, wondering your thoughts. Yeah. So I have seen the entire show, like Ariel was mentioning earlier, it's very compelling. Definitely recommend yeah, I thought it was interesting how, like, in one episode, they addressed the fact that there's, well, there was a separate women's league, and she didn't play in it, and then she never did again, and part of me just thought that they kind of glossed over that really quickly, and I wish they had spent a little bit more time, especially since it was, it's set in the 1960s. I was expecting a little bit more of a civil justice narrative running throughout, because she is a female, granted she is white, that was participating in these conferences, and I definitely did think it was lacking. I still thought the story was very, was very compelling, but yeah, the whole, the whole skipping right over whether or not there's a women's league or not briefly happens in like the second or third episode and then it's never mentioned again. Yeah, I think a lot of the sexism that she was facing, like it was definitely there, but she overcame it every time. And so I mean, it was nice to see a woman overcome that. Like, yes, it would have been way worse in reality and maybe so bad that, like, she wouldn't in reality have kind of continued on in this career. But, you know, I was watching it during, like, a stressful week of class and it was nice to see a young woman succeed. Yeah, definitely pros and cons to having it be more or less realistic. But, it was entertaining. One point that the article emphasized that is kind of realistic is that Beth, the main character, is very much a loner. And we see this throughout. And, you know, she likes to be alone. She doesn't have these close friendships and connections with a lot of people. And one reason the article points to, to why there are so few girls and women in very high-level professional chess is because they don't see a community. They don't see anyone who looks like them. They don't see anyone that they can connect with. And this plays out in the Queen's Gambit because she doesn't have anyone to connect with, but that's okay. And so I, I thought that was just a really interesting point as well, not having this community because people are like, oh, are, you know, are women just not as smart? Are they just not as good? Are they not as capable of being good at chess? Like there's something biologically and the very high level chess experts interviewed said, no, it was just really hard to, to be all by yourself basically most of the time. I think that reinforces something that we talked about with Jessica Budlong and today with Lauren about mentorship and the importance of mentoring young women so that they see there is a space for them in the career that they want in the future. Yeah, and also several of the women interviewed in the article, or at least one of the women interviewed in the article does talk a lot about mentoring girls and uh, young women as well, which I thought was really, really powerful too. Wow. Lots of good discussion. So mm-hmm. thanks everyone for listening. You can find us on Twitter at Big Nuke Energy or email us at bignukeenergy at gmail.com. Thank you again so much to Lauren Buida for her amazing contribution to our conversation. Thanks everyone for listening. Stay safe.